as subject matter goes, it doesn't get much more rock and roll than Joy Division, New Order, The Happy Mondays, Ian Judy, The Stone Roses, Coldplay and Oasis. But in one way or another, all these artists have featured in the work of British director Matt Whitecross. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, our weekly foray into the infinitely varied world of film and television music. And music has been central to Matt's career. As we'll discover, he got his big break from Michael Winterbottom as a runner on 24-hour party people, which tells the story of Tony Wilson and Factory Records. The pair went on to direct Road to Guantanamo together before he flew solo on the Ian Judy biopic Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll and Stone Roses inspired comedy Spike Island. Coldplay are among his illustrious list of music video clients, while he's also worked with composer Elan Eshkere and Tim Wheeler of Ash on more than one project. Indeed, Elan and Tim have very kindly supplied us with some of their favourite compositions for Matt's film and TV work, which you'll hear throughout the show. But where else to begin than with Supersonic? His fantastic documentary charting Oasis's extraordinary journey from the dole queue to that gig at Nebworth which earned them the legitimate right to lay claim to being the biggest band in the world. Matt, welcome to Soundtrack, and I'm so chuffed that you could do the show. I'm going to start with Supersonic. Obviously, music is the backbone of the story of these two characters that you are talking about, and it is a story, and it's told beautifully. When you're approaching something like that, though, when it comes to the music, at what point do you decide how much music you're going to have in it and what you use in it? You don't even decide up until the right, the last minute. I mean, if it was up to me, obviously, we'd be crowbarring even more songs in, I guess. Although the problem is, you've only got two hours to tell your story. So you, you have to choose really carefully, and you want to give each song the space to be able to breathe a little bit. The tricky thing for us, we had this idea at the beginning that like every single song that's in there it can't just be a great song it's got to tell a story it's got to be part of a scene it needs to be a, a way of communicating with the audience so as good as a song is if it doesn't do that or it doesn't fit that part of the film then it can't be in there and it was difficult because we had different versions of the film obviously we had like a kind of seven or eight hour cut at the beginning and everything was in there including later songs you know i, I always loved liam's song i'm out of time that was in there as a kind of score and then it turned into a song and it was great and it was all working well and then, obviously, the film becomes more and more compressed. question we had really from the producers like look you can't not have don't look back in anger there you can't not have wonderwall in there and we talked about it, it's like yeah but if it doesn't fit in the film then it can't really be in there it was a really great team around us so there was never any arguments but it was more like well look don't look back in anger if it doesn't fit in the film it has to be the final song which it was for a little bit but i'd always wanted the master plan to be the one that played that because it's the greatest end credit song of all time <laughs> and i'd be playing it in my head thinking ah oh, it's gonna be great so i didn't feel like it could be take the time to make some sense of what you want to say And cast your words away upon the waves And sail them home with acquiesce On a ship of hope today And as they 
Every single song, whether it's Talk Tonight and the story of how the band split up for the first time, all those songs needed to tell a story. And then luckily we've, we found some footage that was at a key gig uh, in Ireland and it was done at Bakanang and it was just the point where the childhood resurfaces and so on. So that suddenly made sense. example like the song Supersonic. The way that that song evolves and the story behind that song and how it suddenly catapulted them into people's minds and consciousness, that suddenly made sense. So that was the thing for me. We put pretty much every single song they've ever written within that period and some more <laughs> up on the walls and they were coming in and out up until right at the last minute. that I, I guess I regret most the Slide Away which is one of my favourite if not my favourite Oasis song which was there right until the last minute and we had it instead of Don't Look Back in Anger and then the last minute we switched it I think that's right but yeah. you know on the other hand I miss it and I, I'd love to put it back in I love that you've spent so much time surrounded by Oasis and you're still so enthusiastic about it I'm sure at a point where a lot of people would have been sickened of it and never want to hear it ever again <laughs> so I think when it's kind of like I love it I miss it I really miss it I mean that's all that's been on my playlist since I've been wandering around town for the past year but I, you know if it was bad music I mean if I was doing yeah, music I didn't exactly. like I'd have gone crazy by now on top of 
that when you're working on a film and you work with the composer, Raul Jones, you work with. That's right, yeah. How do you know when to bring that into it? And also, what were the discussions that you had with him in terms of what you wanted and, and how you could fill that space that wasn't occupied by Oasis music? Well, it's really difficult because when you're doing music film, and I've done a few now, you've got so much music, it's kind of wall-to-wall music. What's the score going to do? You need score sometimes for you know some emotion or just to tell a bit of the story that the soundtrack can't, but you, you can't overpower you and it can feel a little bit brutalised by the end, so it has to complement it. So with Rail, I knew I wanted him to do it. He is, aside from being an amazing, well, he's a genius anyway, but aside from being an amazing composer, he is also um, someone who's been a music editor and one of the best in the world. And he uh, watched some amazing films. Some incredible films. He did Les Mis and he did all that. And, yeah. and from some of the stories on that, not from him, by the way, so in case anyone wants to sack him <laughs> in future, but no, but yeah, I think it might have been a tricky one to try and pull together. But he is incredible at that. But he's, he's one of those people that you meet, very unassuming, very modest, and then you see him in the studio, and that for me is one of the great privileges. You see, he plays every single instrument, apart from the violin, which his uh, his amazing wife does, wow. and she does everything. She does all the strings, and she comes in. She's the series like a, a genius, and she comes in as well. And, the, and the, just seeing the two of them put this score together from nothing, him playing every single instrument was was a real privilege. And so, yeah, that was the question: it's like, how do you create something which tells that story without being just getting a wall of sound, you know, yeah. without being distracting? So we got, we got together, you put in your temp score, which there are obviously pros and cons to. It's great because you, you get some of the best music of all time and you get to, to use it and you can go, oh great, well, you know, we can stick in Cliff Martinez. Fantastic, <laughs> it's brilliant, it works brilliant. And then the danger is obviously... You fall in love with it. You fall in love with it. And also I think a danger for the composer, because I said to Ray, look, why don't I just give you the film with it all stripped out and then it's not going to bother you and you can just make your own mind up. He said, no, no, I want to hear it. I want to see where your mind's at. Obviously, to his credit, he didn't mimic it in any way. It's kind of in a similar ballpark, some of the stuff, you know, yeah. just in terms of sometimes it might just be something as simple as instrumentation. Or if we're doing something slightly more ambient, then he'll go with that and yeah. can understand the music has to be slightly in the background rather than be, you know, kind of at the front. But that's, composers seem to find it useful. So far, all the ones I work with prefer to, give us, to have something rather than nothing.
One of the things I've always wanted to try and do, and we never had the money and the time to do, was to be able to have the score up front, or at least some ideas. And I knew Rail was going to do the film, and I kind of talked about it, but again, there was no time and no money, and he was busy on other projects. That's something that I'd love to, to try in the future, is just, you know, you hear all these stories about Sergio Leone's relationship with Ennio Morricone and being on set and actually timing the actors. Obviously, there's no actors in this, but yeah. in a drama, timing the actors' movements to the score. It makes so much sense. Saludos, amigo. It's not smart to go wandering so far from home. <laughs> I reckon he picked the wrong trail. Or he could have picked it on down. His big mistake, I think, was getting born. You want any work? Looking like that. You could try being a scarecrow. Oh, no, the crows are liable to scare him, maybe. Cliff Martinez, phenomenal composer. Is that something you're a big fan of and you really kind of pay attention to? Because I see you at so many kind of films. You're a real film fan as well. I was constantly always got questions as well, which is going like, who's got the first question? Matt, go. <laughs> it's brilliant. Who's that annoying it. idiot? No, in the it's back. perfect. It makes my job a lot easier. But is score something in, in film that you're a big fan of? Definitely, definitely. I love it. And, and increasingly, you're able to access a lot of these scores and, and kind of old classic scores. So I quite often put them on my playlist and just, especially if you're writing, I find it's really useful when I'm writing just to have something the background that's not necessarily too in your face it doesn't have any lyrics so it's not kind of distracting that way and that's not too familiar to me you know some of the the really great composers their scores are kind of even on the big hollywood films you don't necessarily notice them going in and then you come out and they, they yeah. stay with you and you're humming a tune and you don't really know what it is it's subliminal yeah. i love that about it yeah. um, so i always search them out on a couple of films as well. How did that relationship start and what are the benefits of working with a composer on more than one occasion? Well, so yeah, you develop a shorthand and music's notoriously difficult to talk about. I mean, I kind of trained musically in certain ways. Like I can play piano, I can play violin, I can play a bit of guitar. I mean, that's a few instruments yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm not very well, any of them, I should probably add. But at least you've got some kind of understanding yeah. the same language. On the other hand, even that, sometimes you don't want to get too precise about it. I don't want to be prescriptive about anything. Yeah. I would hate to be one of those people in the background going, no, 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 I think you mean this chord or something like that. It's yeah. not my department. But on the other hand, it does does help a little bit just to be able to speak about it. So the first thing I ever worked on with the composer was with Michael Winterbottom. We were doing Road to Guantanamo and uh, Harry Escott and Molly Nyman were people that he had talked to in the past about doing oh, stuff. Wow. So they did the score for that. Is it Michael's daughter? It is Michael oh, Nyman's wow. daughter. Yes, that was a real privilege. And just hearing some of the stories and, and seeing how they work. 
then from that, when we did Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, we had Chaz Jankel, who was the guy who wrote um, all the songs with Ian. So that was kind of unusual because, and I was a bit, a bit worried about it initially because it was one of those things like, look, he hasn't written a soundtrack for a long time. What if it's terrible? <laughs> in the nicest possible way, he's a lovely guy. He's, one, he's incredibly talented. But what if he comes in and it's like, well, this is it. I don't want to destroy a relationship that's so important to the film. But Damien, the producer, was like, well, no, no, look, look he's, he's a nice guy. He'll, he'll understand if it, you know, he's, he gets that you'll have notes. So he, he, he produced this score, which was great. But the good thing for us was also that he played it on a keyboard. He was like, well, this is where I've got to. You'll finish it off. So then we brought Elan on board yeah. to score it and, and uh, arrange it and so on. And his producer, Steve McLaughlin, is like one of the biggest guys in the business. And he's amazing. And he's yeah. not only his large in life character, he's, he's like did everything from Die Hard to Heat. Like, seeing him work is incredible. And so I started working with the two of them. And then I was in the Coldplay studio one time doing some filming, and it was quite a surreal moment actually because we were in the process of trying to finance this film, Ashes, which I'd written about my dad, with the writer of Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, uh, Paul Virag. So we'd written this thing and we were trying to get it financed and it was had the very sexy subject of uh, a man dying of Alzheimer's. Even though it was a road movie thriller, that's a hard sell. So we were going around town, it was really difficult and yeah. you know, my dad had just died, so I was like, oh, you know, a lot of things seemed to have piled up at the same time. And I went into the Coldplay studio, I was working with them and They'd just finished Viva La Vida, I think, um, it must have been, and they said, well, we're gonna have some, a celebratory dinner, and there was Brian Eno, and he came in, everyone sat round, and then Tim Wheeler walked in, as, as you do. I'd only met him a couple of times socially, but he was a friend of Chris's, and everyone was like, oh, hi, how are you doing? In that British way of just not wanting an answer, yeah, you, all yeah, you're yeah. supposed to say is like, oh, fine. good, good, fine. And he was like, uh, yeah, not great, my dad just died of Alzheimer's. And everyone was like, wow, that's a downer on, the, on, the, on this celebratory occasion. And Chris went, well, Matt's dad just died of Alzheimer's as well. And I'm like, okay. You so did your chat. You did chat, so which we did in front of everyone else for an hour. <laughs> It was the bleakest celebration ever. It was, it was kind of amazing, you know. Because what came out of it? Well, yeah, exactly. So, so, and Tim said at the end, you know, because I've been a fan of Tim's. I mean, it was one of the like one of the first bands I went to see. One, I've just I loved that he was a hero of mine growing up. And so, I just even being in the same room, I was like, this is very cool. Yeah. But we talked about it and we really connected. And I just said at the end, it sounds like you haven't quite got your head around. It. Obviously, it's all happening so so quickly. But if you ever want to go for a drink, let's have a chat. Because I found that. I was fine initially and then I really lost the plot a yeah. few months later mm -hmm. and he said yeah, yeah yeah cool and I thought oh yeah he's never gonna call and like that night he rang he said do you want to go for a drink <laughs> so we went for a drink and we really caught up and he said well, what I really want to do is is write scores uh, as on the side I want to carry on with, with my music but I'd love to have a, have a go at it and I said oh well it would be perfect if I didn't already have someone writing the next score I'd ask you to do it but I've got Elan doing it and he said oh my Elan's my best mate why don't we do it together I was like great So it kind of just worked out that way and then we did Spike Island straight after that. 
so they wrote the score together and then but the Tim wrote all the band songs for the fake band, our fictitious band in yeah. the middle of it. came off that we did this TV show called Fleming and they both did that and then they weren't available for Supersonic and I knew Rail I'd met him a few times he came in and he was friends with the guy who's doing the sound yeah he's so lovely and unassuming and, and then I but and he said oh you know I, I write music now and uh, I was like, oh, okay great and I thought you know because you have this conversation all the time and I just checked some of it out and I was like this is absolutely incredible with someone like Michael Winterbottom, which was your first job, wasn't it, on 24 Hour Party? Yeah, Is that right? that's right, yeah. To have that as your first thing yeah. with him, but with that world, has it had sort of lasting impression on you? Yeah, a huge, a huge effect on me, because I didn't really know that much about that part of the Manchester music scene. I was a little bit young then, so I discovered the Stone Roses when I got to uni, but actually I missed the Stone Roses. Like, Spike Island happened before I was really into that kind of music. So I, I, Oasis were my band. Well, lots of bands were my band, but if I was going for a Manchester band, that was my Manchester band. Manchester, birthplace to the railways, the computer, the bouncing bomb. In 1976, if you wanted to see the most exciting bands in the world, they were on a regional show coming out of Manchester. My show. I'm Tony Wilson. June the 4th, the Sex Pistols play Manchester for the very first time. There are only 42 people in the audience. Inspired, they will go out and perform wondrous deeds. For instance, behind me are Stiff Kittens, later to become Joy Division, and finally to become New Order. That's John the Postman, he's a postman. So with 24 Hour Party People, coming into it, I was basically just the runner. But the great thing about uh, Michael is that you walk into a room with him and he goes, oh, okay, well, what, what are you doing? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm making the tea for you. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, but what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I want to be a director like you. He's like, well, okay, okay, I can't make you a director today, but okay, what else can you do? I was like, well, I can edit, I can shoot, I can, whatever you want, I'll write, you know? And he was like, okay, cool. And he kind of banks it and nothing happens for two or three months and you're making you know, making lots of cups of tea for famous people and feeling, little, by the end of the three months, the first day, this is amazing, you're very keen. And after about six months, you're like, oh, all right, fine, I'll send another fax or whatever it was at that point. Yeah. Radio, live transmission. Radio, 
And then suddenly ring up from Manchester and go, oh, okay, I need you to come and shoot second unit for me. Follow some gangsters, like I mean, proper gangsters around town, and film them. Just we're just doing a montage of drug taking and uh, and pointing guns at camera and stuff. So, good luck to you. turn up and they're just <laughs> surrounded by all these really dodgy characters and they kind of sit you down with the camera and they're like as you're waiting in this bookstore there's basically a porn bookstore and i'm there like 21 years old going this is great well, what's that what's gonna happen next i'm probably gonna get shot and there's some drug deal going on and they sit you in the back and they go okay what do you want i was like well we're just gonna film you doing whatever it is you do and then we just kind of ran around town me and paul monaghan who god just met for the first time who actually then late many years later edited a few films with me including supersonic yeah and the two of us running around with cameras like idiots basically being the second unit and then we filmed all this stuff and then Michael's like oh okay well you can edit the trailer then and so within kind of six months of having made the tea you're now effectively an editor and a cameraman and a second unit director and then quite soon after that he says oh you know let's direct a film together so he's unique like that I mean incredibly generous Well, anyone who's met Michael and never seen him work, he's incredibly single-minded. He's just driven and he's constantly doing his thing. So I, you kind of fit in around him. So the way that that came about was he was about to go and do this film in Newcastle called Goal. Yeah. And he's sports mad and, and I'm not. I remember that film. Yeah, yeah. well, it did come out. Someone, I think Danny Cannon made it in the end. I never saw it. But um, he's sports mad. I'm not. I hate sport. And I just, anyone starts talking about it, my eyes glaze over. I'm just <laughs> like, right. Every time you get in the back of the cab, I'm like, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> and yeah, it's like, it's like, I don't have a favourite team. Please just leave me alone. But he's, he's obsessed and he was going to go and do this film. And, but his take on it was it was going to be about, uh, it was kind of political and it was about migrants coming over to Newcastle and this guy comes over, he's Mexican. And it was really, it was an interesting take on it. Yeah. And it, the film looked like it was actually going to fall apart. We went out for a drink with all the crew just before we left for Newcastle. And he said, well, this film's going to fall apart tomorrow. And I was like, what? You know, we'd have packed our bags. And it didn't, it fell apart a few weeks later. But, you know, we yeah. kind of already started shooting and, and the thing just wasn't happening. But that night, I got really drunk, and I, I just read this article by a journalist called David Rose, uh, who wrote for The Observer, and he met these guys, the Tipton Three, who'd come out of Guantanamo Bay, and were British. And I said, oh, you should make this film. This film's much... It's like, this is the kind of film... This is important, not like some football film. And uh, he was like, all right, well, if you feel that strongly about it, we'll make it together. And we were both quite drunk, so I was like, yeah, okay, great. You're going to make it with the guy who makes the tea. Yeah, of course you are. <laughs> You're like one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, just, I'll make it with the runner. But actually, the next day, he was like, okay, well, you're going to ring the lawyers then. So we rang the lawyers, and kind of the whole thing happened. The ones in Guantanamo Bay are killers. They don't share the same values we share. The fact remains that treatment is proper. No! And there's no doubt in my mind that it is humane and consistent with the Geneva Convention for the most part. Despite international criticism, America insists that the conditions are humane. That's only a taste. That's only a taste. It's terrifying. It's changed my life. The world's not a nice place. 
And he was amazingly generous. And the way that he, because I was an editor already, so the way that he edits is you're on one machine, he's on the other. And then when you're filming, he films with two cameras. He's on one camera with the cameraman and I'm on the other one. And, and then normally he would speak to the, the actors but the good thing was I'd done all the research, so I lived with the Tipton Three for two months in Oxford, around the corner from my mum's, and we just stayed together and we kind of did interviews every day. So there wasn't a script, a kind of traditional script. So he'd go, hang on, this isn't working. What was it supposed to be like? And then we would kind of sit down and figure it out together. So amazingly, he was incredibly generous and shared everything. What amazing, amazing kind of start. That's Yeah, yeah, I was incredibly lucky. I still kind of pinch myself, because it's one of those things, I had a lot of friends who worked for much bigger companies, and, you know, they spent two years perfecting the kind of this, yeah, the, the latte. Yeah, yeah, no, the latte. The latte. No, like, by the end of that, they're like, <laughs> yeah, they'd made like, you know, the perfect cup of tea. Yeah. And it was just like, and I'd spent two years making films. It was, it was incredible. Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll and just the wonderful Andy Serkis in taking on that role of Ian Dury and how great that film was. When you are asking someone to take on the role of an iconic character, particularly in the music industry, how much prep goes into that? Yeah, a huge amount of prep and we were really lucky because for whatever reason, schedule-wise for him and then finance-wise because we were struggling to piece together the money as usual and, and all those kind of things. Actually, there was quite a long delay before we got to start making it. So we got to meet all the blockheads, he got to meet all the family, got to hang out with them. And then it was interesting because I kept on turning the film down because obviously, I like, like everyone, I know the famous tunes, but it's not like I grew up with that tune. It's not really part of my bloodstream in the way that the Oasis is, for yeah. example. And so I, I kept on saying, look, I'm not the right director for it. It sounds great. I love everything about it. I know a little bit about it. But my dad was the, the injury fan. And Damon Jones, the producer, was like, but that's why you should do it because I don't want someone to be too precious about it. I don't want someone just, should be in some nostalgia fest. It should just feel fresh. Yeah. So we kept on circling each other. So when I got to meet the band, I didn't have that sense, well, I guess that I have with Noel and Liam later on. It's like, oh my God, I'm meeting these, these legends. Because I didn't know that much about them, so I had that kind of arrogance of complete ignorance. And it wasn't until I started doing the research a little bit later, I was like, oh God, okay, these guys are important. Which, is, which was very useful, I think, because otherwise I'd probably lost my mind. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll is very good indeed. Every bit of clothing ought to make you pretty. You can cut the clothing, grey is such a pity. I should wear the clothing of Mr. Walter Mitty. See my tailor, he's called Simon. I know it's going to fit. But Andy was very starstruck. That was the great thing was the actors going there and they're freaking out because it's like they're, they're going to be singing in front of musicians. And it was the same with the blockheads. They were all terrified about meeting Captain Haddock and Gollum. <laughs> so it was actually good because then everyone was in pretty good behaviour. 
Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. But what was interesting from my perspective about it is I could go in there and actually direct them because I could say, well, look, this is what this song is supposed to be doing for the film. This is the story it's telling. And I think it's something that they haven't had since Ian died or since just before then because it was like they needed someone to push them in different because they're all brilliant musicians but actually they really appreciated having someone that kind of like a, a ringmaster coming in even if he was like you know uh, a young spotty teenager who didn't know what he was doing in the deserts of Sudan and the gardens of Japan from Milan to Yucatan every woman was Hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me, hit me. Schitter, ich liebe dich. Hit me, hit me, hit me. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me slowly. Hit me quick. Hit me, hit me, hit me. It helped to just give it a bit of shape. And then Andy was amazing because he really was channeling Ian. I mean, he screwed up his back from limping for about the best part of a year trying to get the walk right and so yeah. on. But it's similarly with Oasis. Each song had to tell a story rather than just be a good song. It takes on a different form. Yeah, yeah, and it's really exciting that way because also it challenges the musicians to work in a different way. So one of the things that Chris always talks about Brian Eno doing and being a genius at doing is that he comes in the studio and he goes, right, uh, Chris is going to be on drums. Can you go and play drums? Uh, yeah, Johnny's going to be singing. And it's like, well, it puts them out of their comfort zone. <laughs> and then suddenly when they go back to doing their normal roles, it kind of works again or it works in a different way. Yeah. And I think with the blockheads when you've had a chance to do it that way it's like oh, okay this is new to me and now I can kind of challenge myself to try something new Magnificent What was wrong with that? That's perfect Does the music differ from doing it for TV to, to film? It's a similar process but I find I mean TV is, is difficult it's not something I've done very much of you have to fill a slot. Yeah. And if you're a frame over your, the time they've given you, I think it's getting different now with HBO and a lot of the cable channels and, yeah. and, and Netflix and so on. With Fleming, when you were thinking of the score and the kind of music elements for that, did you approach it the same way as you would have filmed? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it was interesting because we knew that we wanted to hint at the Bond scores without getting sued and, uh, <laughs> and without being too on the nose. Yeah. And so we had that kind of element in there. then it's a very tricky thing because you've got opening music that you have every week. You've got these kind of things that just, that you don't normally have to think about and you've got to hit certain marks. It's like the opening bit has to be whatever it is, 15 minutes or something like that. So sometimes just when you feel like, oh, you really need the sweep of a score to take you into the next scene, you're cut to commercial break. So that was an interesting new challenge.
we wanted to do a big epic score because normally the scores that you're working on a music film it's like you're trying to take it down a notch because yeah. everything else is so in your face whereas on Fleming the music was doing everything and it was often kind of aping the kind of classical time because obviously this is a period TV show so yeah. it was a tricky one from that se- in that sense but Elan and Tim really embraced it because they're both they're, well, like everyone they're Bond fans mm-hmm. and, and they just they love the idea of doing something that was a bit more epic they can do opulence yeah they can do anything very well yeah, yeah. do anything music videos you've done a little cold playing stuff do you plan them there's no planning there's absolutely <laughs> no planning the way that they tend to work they like to be spontaneous chris and the band have got so much on the plate they don't like to think about anything until it's almost too late michael's the same until you're on set and they're like well hang on where's the pink elephants you're like, oh god why did we have this conversation yesterday and then you're running around central manchester trying to find a pink elephant and the same with coldplay like the last video we did was for Adventure of a Lifetime. The way it came together was one of those natural things, which was chaotic, but kind of amazing. Chris had met Andy Circus through me. I can't even remember what it was. Anyway, whatever it was, they knew each other, and they were on a plane heading to the States, I think, and then he just saw Andy. He was like, oh, how are you doing? And Andy had just opened up the Imaginarium, which yeah. is his, his company. And so they said, uh, oh, we should do something together, like everyone always does. And then Chris heard about the technology, which is the same technology they use for Avatar and, and that kind of thing. And you put on the crazy leotard with yeah. the dots on it and the ping pong balls and all that and the headset. Yeah, it's like make-believe. You can be anything. If you wanted to be a lampshade or you wanted to be a, a, you know, a, kind of an elephant or a flower, whatever it is, then they can do that for you. And yeah. you can see it in real time. It's an, an amazing thing. So, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that for our next um, video. And you know, they, they contacted me and said, well, would you want to kind of try and organise the chaos? So, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Chris sent me this beautiful tune, him for the weekend, which wasn't finished. And I was like, oh, it's beautiful. I came up with some ideas. And I said, well, let's get in a room with Andy and you. And he's only available in Air Studios for one night. So we get everyone together. This is two days before the shoot. We'll book the shoot in. And I sat down. I was like, right, this is the idea. This is what we're going to do. This is what I, th- I think we could do. And Chris was like, no, I don't like that idea. OK, what do we do? Do we not do the shoot on Friday? Or what are we going to do? And he's like, well, I, I want it to be photo real. I want it to look like the band. I was like, well, that's exactly what the technology isn't yet very good at doing. You know, if you want to try and get photo real humans, it's pretty better to shoot real humans who are cheap rather than spend <laughs> millions trying to create them for nothing. I'm here. Yeah, exactly. And he was like, oh, OK, well, should we not do it? And obviously, you know, me and Hannah, the producer, no, 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 it's great. It's great. Look, we'll just we'll film it. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll wing it. It'll be fine. We turn up on the morning. Oh, him for the weekend, this kind of embryonic version, blaring out all the speakers and Chris walks in and goes oh no we're not doing that tune he's like what do you mean we're not doing the tune he's like, oh no 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 we've got another tune we just played it in the studio this morning it's going to be great and we've only got the guitar riff no way. so I was like well how are you going to lip sync he's like, oh no I'm not going to lip sync in this one so okay so they start playing the around I know, but then again you know because it's them yeah. and because you re- they really have just chucked everyone off a cliff then it's fine there's no pressure because like well look if it, if it really screws up then you know it's just the, it's the nature of it and it's yeah. actually at that point it's not costing that much Turn your magical and you should say everything you want to dream away under this pressure 
this way We are diamonds taking shape We are diamonds taking shape So everyone dresses up in the leotards and we're blaring out this new amazing guitar riff which we, everyone's like dancing around to but it's like I don't know what it is and then they started playing it and they got into the suits Andy had thought ahead and the guy his, his team is amazing and they work with everyone they work on Star Wars and they do yeah. everything and so they were like look the night before they are like let's find some kind of stock characters we can find online Zombie cop. There's like weird things because it's all made by geeks. Zombie cop. <laughs> yeah. There's like chimpanzee. There's like what, Godzilla kind of thing. Stick all those, throw those into the mix, and then see what happens. So we go, all right, well, let's start playing this tune. And now you're going to look like, you know, now you're going to look like a big lizard, right? Now you're going to look like a monkey. Now, and everyone, as soon as you chimpanzee, everyone's like, that's the one. We love this. This is great. And then we did it for a bit. And then Chris was like, oh, we should, yeah, maybe I should do some lip sync. So everyone else went home. And he was like, I've written some tune. Okay. And they kind of played back some of that. But it wasn't, it still wasn't finished. And then we kind of spent the next six months with this amazing team in France, uh, Mathematic, who did everything and yeah. created every single pixel on every plant and everything else they did from scratch. So that's how they've all come together from Paradise. Any of those, it's just like Chris rings up the night before, goes, get on a plane to South Africa with an elephant costume and a unicycle. <laughs> I'll see you there, I'll explain on the way there. That's, that's it. And here's your award for best video <laughs> again. Woohoo! Yeah, that's been mostly down to Chris and the, the, the impact of the tunes. I sometimes feel, I mean, this isn't just like self-deprecation, but I do feel like with Oasis and with Coldplay and with the songs like Paradise, the music is so good that actually sometimes you just kind of stay out of the way as much as, as you can. So I, I felt like when we were doing the Oasis film, I felt like with Supersonic, just to let them tell their story straight. So it's not it's not that I'm saying, oh, I didn't have anything to do with it, but it's more like, let's just listen listen to them and let them tell the story. And similarly with Chris and the band, it's just like, let them do their thing and then something will come out of it. them to Chris and that to, to do score on anything because that's I something I would love them to hear them do yeah well Chris is really keen to do it um, but you know he's a busy man yeah. I asked him to do Ashes before I met Tim yeah. and before I uh, spoke to Elan about it and he said yeah yeah I'll do it that'll be great and he was like I'm going to be your John Williams it's going to be great I'm going to do every single but he's very enthusiastic and then he's like oh hang on then Phil comes in as the voice of reality and it's like well yeah. you're available in about six years time so if that's alright if you don't mind delaying the film by a decade and I'm like well I can't and then he was like, no, no, you've got to do it with Tim, it'd be great. So it's one of those things where... Time will be right. Maybe, one day, yeah. This could be I'm so proud and happy for you for this film because it's a story that a lot of people think they know and they think they know Liam and know but you've kind of revealed so much more about the band and about the kind of heart and soul of who they were and stuff as well and Thank so, you so much, much I think goes back to their mum well, It's funny because obviously I've read interviews with her and I've seen her in a couple of things but it's always the snippet and yeah. you don't really get a chance to get to know her and I said to Noel I think it was only the second session we'd done I was like oh, I'd love to talk to your mum I was like why are you going to talk to her she's got nothing to say I was like well I don't think that's true so, like, lots of things. Was like, I was a little bit worried about mm. what my angle was 
going to be. And especially, I guess, with the childhood, which is so difficult. And I said, no, I, I can have a chat with her. And if she doesn't have anything to say, then we won't put it in the film. So, oh, right. And I saw her a week later and went over to her house. And she still lives in the same house they grew up in. Wow. After they run away from the dad. And she's amazing. You know, she's a kind of quiet hero. She got through a lot for that family and for those boys. And she's very, very funny. Um, she didn't swear with us, but Liam says she's got a filthy mouth. <laughs> she denied that. She's like, but he said what? You know, but she is. <laughs> That's who he gets it from. <laughs> yeah, but the first 20 minutes of the original cut were just her and her childhood and sleeping seven to a bed with her sisters and you know having to share one pair of wellies between eight kids on the way to school and stuff. Like really amazing stuff about Ireland and the courage to at 18 years to go over to England on your own and try and make a life for yourself and then trying to send money back home to, to feed people in the middle of uh, a really difficult time. All that was amazing but then I was like oh, God the Oasis fans are going to kill us we're going to have 20 minutes before they even play a note <laughs> before they're even born. I was like this isn't going to work but in the 10 hour cut it's going to be great we're going to have a whole mini series. Can't wait for it. Peg the movie. Do it. All right, I'm up Do for it. it. Uh, Matt, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much. As featured in Matt Whitecross's Oasis documentary, Supersonic, that's Rock and Roll Star by Oasis. Rounding off this, the latest episode of Soundtracking. My thanks to Matt for taking the time to talk to us. Supersonic is available on home entertainment formats now and makes for compelling viewing whether you are a fan of the band or not. Now, if you'd like to hear the tracks we've played during the course of the conversation, just head to edithbowman.com where you'll also be able to catch up with all of our previous episodes. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and do rate us on iTunes if you get a second. Next up, none other than Christopher Guest, a.k.a. Nigel Tufnell from Spinal Tap, whose latest mockumentary, Mascots, can be seen on Netflix now. I look forward to the pleasure of your company then. We'll be sure to turn it up to 11. Music